Welcome to the Never Stop Getting Better podcast powered by Guardian Caps. Guardian Caps are a one-size-fits-all helmet cover that help reduce impact for your players during practice. Coach Perry is a huge proponent of Guardian Caps after using them at Pearl High School, and it was one of the first football items he purchased when taking the job at Nixon. Caps are mandated by the NFL for O-line, D-line, linebackers, tight ends, and running backs, and utilized by over 270 colleges, over 3,000 high schools, and over 600 youth programs across the country. As helmets become more and more expensive, the Guardian Caps also do a great job of protecting your helmet investment. See the link in our show notes for more information on Guardian Caps. In each episode, John takes you on a journey of growth, learning, and endless improvement. Whether you're an athlete, coach, or someone simply just striving to get better, this podcast is for you. Now, here's your host, John Perry. Alright, welcome back to the show this week. This may be the most exciting week of them all because of the guest we have. We have one Anson Dorrance, who is the soccer coach and has been the soccer coach at North Carolina for quite some time. This might take a minute, but hang in there with me. And and these numbers are going to be pretty close. I'm not going to say they're exact, but they're going to be close. 1,106 wins, 934 and 87 at North Carolina, 22 national titles, 22 ACC titles, that's a 90% winage percentage, which is absolutely asinine. He's in the National Soccer Hall of Fame. He's in the North Carolina Sports Hall of Fame, the United Soccer Coaches Hall of Fame, the North Carolina Sports Hall of Fame. ESPN said he's one of the best coaches of the past quarter century. I would second that. Sports Illustrated said the greatest college dynasty of all time. Wow. Um, soccer America says one of the most influential people in the history of American soccer. Um, I would say that's probably not some genius statement, right? Um, and served as the head coach of the United States women's national team from 1986 to 94, leading the team USA to the title in the first ever women's world cup in China in 1991 has had 19 different players named national player of the year. Including, including Mia Hamm, who was one of my favorites, and named National Coach of the Year seven or eight times. I've seen and heard both. He's got several books, and he's got a podcast, The Vision of a Champion podcast, which we will attach um, in the show notes, all of the books and the podcast. I have started listening to the podcast, and it's fantastic, and it kind of goes along with one of the books, um, Vision of a Champion. Anson, thank you so much for allowing me the opportunity to have this conversation with you today. Well, John, uh, first of all, thank you. That was so gracious. Uh, my ego right now is soaring like a hawk. Uh, and I'm wondering if you could reintroduce me to my wife. I think she's forgotten all this stuff. I mean, all, all I have to do is take the garbage out. I mean, are you kidding me? Uh, I forgot how great I was. Would you just come home with me and uh, let her know? Uh, you know, yeah, hey. that would really help me out, John. I'll so, tell you um, what, I'll sure tell her because that's that's quite an impressive um, list of things, man. And it's absolutely fantastic. And, you know, I appreciate you being here. I want to start by, you know, because your your growing up is unique. You know, it's different than than the coaches that I've interviewed or the people that's been on here. What led you to want to get into the coaching profession how did the coaching profession come to be because i know you were you know in law school and and you know this and that 
how did the coaching profession come to be, um, you know, for you? Honestly, I was never interested in coaching. Um, <clears throat> my dad, uh, when I was a college kid, was starting his own uh, oil uh, company. And um, he wanted me to be his corporate attorney. So uh, he wanted me to go to law school. Uh, and of course, the family joke at the time is if I went to law school and served as his corporate attorney, at least I wouldn't have a tendency to steal from my own estate. So there's family humor for you. Well, right. Loved my father. I was a dutiful son, and I went to law school uh, for my father um, and absolutely hated it. Um, but what was interesting is the guy I played for at the University of North Carolina was a wonderful man by the name of Dr. Marvin Allen. And uh, he was set to retire. And when he retired, um, this is just before I was admitted to law school, he went and spoke to uh, Mr. Bill Kobe, who was the athletic director at the University of North Carolina. Uh, and he suggested to Mr. Kobe that uh, they consider hiring me when uh, he stepped down. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, I get a call from uh, Mr. Kobe's secretary, you know, uh, Anson, uh, Mr. Kobe wants to meet with you. Do you have any time next week to meet? And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, yeah. So uh, this must mean Marvin is retiring. So I will assemble a list of recommendations to make to my athletic director, because obviously I was a huge, uh, you know, passionate uh, fan of everything North Carolina. And I wanted to make sure that we went out there and got the best coach in the country to, to replace uh, my mentor. And uh, so I was all excited. I had, I think, three names picked out of the three top coaches in the country. And I knew a school like North Carolina could attract them. I mean, uh, we have a wonderful uh, uh brand here and Chapel Hill is a great place. So I was pretty confident that uh, we could attract any of these three extraordinary uh, men. And so I'm, <laughs> I march into Kobe's office and all of a sudden uh, my jaw drops because he's just skipped everything and gotten right to the point. Anson, uh, we would like to hire you to replace Dr. Marvin Allen as the next men's soccer coach here at the University of North Carolina. And I had no real coaching resume. I coached in the Rainbow Soccer League, a co-educational, recreational level, uh, you know, soccer league in Chapel Hill. And so uh, I was, in my opinion, immensely underqualified. Um, but obviously, uh, Marvin Allen saw something in me I never saw. Um, and uh, I wanted to contribute. My wife was putting me through law school. Uh, uh, she was a, a professional ballet dancer, and when we got married, she moved to Chapel Hill, and so she was uh, teaching locally at a local ballet school, and <clears throat> I wanted to contribute to the, the family income because uh, law school was on the horizon, so I accepted the job as income with no real interest in coaching except uh, um, to some extent I was coaching the boys already because I was their captain. Uh, I've never been uh, very shy, so I had no issue, you know, telling the boys what to do during a game. And, and so I was hired so young, I was actually coaching guys I'd played with, which is kind of shocking, um, but I had no issue with it. And so I'm um, coaching the men, I'm, I'm going to law school, but in order to uh, coach the men's soccer team as the head coach, I took a course shy each semester. So usually a law student graduates in, in uh, three years. It was gonna take me into my fourth year to finish my law degree. But no big deal. You know, I was excited about finishing the degree and everything else. And all of a sudden, in the spring of my third year of law school, with only uh, basically one year to go or even one semester, if I decided to stuff 
six classes into one semester, uh, the athletic director calls me up again. And this was during the early years of Title IX. So Richard Nixon had put into law Title IX in 1972. And uh, all of a sudden, I, I guess uh, my athletic director had a sense that, you know, this was a law that was going to be taken seriously. And so we had a women's club on campus, a women's soccer club that had petitioned for varsity status. And he wanted me to come out and vet them for him. So the game they were playing was on a field literally right underneath the law school library. And so I had a very short, you know, trip from, you know, my books open in the library to, to come down to the field and watch this women's club play. So the game ended and uh, he said, well, Anson, what do you think? I said, well, honestly, uh, Mr. Kobe, uh, they're well organized, they're committed. And now I'm sort of shilling for the coach and shilling for the team. I would have no issue sharing a practice complex with this, this team and I would have no issue sharing the stadium with them. So yeah, let's, let's make them a varsity. No sooner than those words were out of my head then Mr. Kobe said, well, Anson, if you will coach both teams, I will make your part-time men's position full-time. And now I'm just, again, gobsmacked. And I'm thinking, well, okay, you know, I wanted to contribute. My wife was doing all the heavy lifting and I, I felt like I had to contribute. So I agreed. And so uh, all of a sudden I'm going into that fall and I'm coaching the men from two to four, women four to six. I'm going to law school. And if you know anything about law school, it is a grind. And again, I'm not the most gifted student. So I am just, I'm getting four to six sleep uh, of hours sleep every night. And I don't know about you, I can't function without sleep. And I am just, just frazzled. And so finally, in uh, I think late September, early October, I come home uh, and I'm so apologetic uh, because I'm about to tell my wife I'm going to drop out of law school. I'm thinking, well, how do I phrase this? I mean, is she going to leave me? I mean, you know, so I come home and I say, you know, honey, I'm so sorry. You know, uh, we're not going to retire on a yacht in the Mediterranean. I've decided to become a soccer coach. And you guys know all about the coaching profession. I mean, there is no money in it, um, at least at the level I was coaching. And uh, I just love my wife's response. She threw her arms around me and said, honey, um, we don't need money. We're going to be happy. You absolutely love this. Um, I love what I'm doing. Let's just be happy. Uh, we don't need money to be happy. And and so I, I love the fact she fully embraced me, but I was never interested in coaching. Uh, what I did as a coach was I wanted to contribute to the family income so I could help pay for my own law school education. So that was my motivation. And then all of a sudden, uh, what ended up happening I fell in love with it. I guess the guy I played for knew something in me I never saw uh, because I was never considering that as an option. And again, because I love my father, I wanted to work for him and his oil company. And uh, uh, he he thought, you know, the law school would be great for me because I have no issue uh, debating people. I'm a pretty good debater. I'm argumentative. I'm competitive. Uh, so my dad thought I'd be a great uh, litigator for him uh, as his corporate attorney. Uh, but I fell in love with coaching. And of course, one of the hardest persons to tell in the world that actually wasn't my wife. I knew that she loved me and she would embrace me. And I was just uh, really uh, had the difficult conversation with my dad because his plans were to hire me upon graduation. And and I told him, uh, you know, I wanted to coach. And uh, at first he was he was upset with me. 
but then obviously he came down and watched me work. And then within about four or five years, he could see I absolutely loved it. And then uh, he uh, re-embraced me for my choice. Um, but uh, again, I was never interested in the coaching profession. Okay. How old were you when Dr. Allen, you know, approached you and, and turned the job over to you? And, you know, I know this is asking a, a hypothetical question, but what did he see in you? You know, what do you think he saw in you that gave him, you know, the freedom or the desire to offer you that position? Well, you know, what I think he saw is I was an exceptionally competitive human being. Uh, and uh, he genuinely liked my competitive fire. Uh, I'm not the biggest guy in the world. I'm about five, ten and a half. And my playing weight when I played for him at UNC was 135 pounds. So I was a scrawny little thing, but I was fierce and I was combative. Uh, I had a very high pain threshold. I was almost always the fittest guy in the field. Uh, and I painted the field. I went everywhere. I could play up top. I could play in midfield. My freshman year, I played in the back. I've played in almost every position on the field, so I knew the game exceptionally well. Um, so I think uh, what he saw in me more than anything else um, was probably leadership. Uh, I had no issue uh, telling the people around me what to do. I was a very aggressive uh, leader, um, and I think that's what he saw in me. But I think he also saw in me uh, that I was passionate about the game because I improved in uh, my three years under him at an extraordinarily uh, aggressive clip. Uh, my first year, I attended St. Mary's University in San Antonio, Texas. I played on their team. I was one of two Americans starting on this club. Uh, St. Mary's University was run by a bunch of uh, Catholic Marianists, and they had a lot of uh, uh, teaching opportunities in South America. So the, the kids I played with as a freshman at St. Mary's were basically these elite South American players. Uh, but I was fierce and I was combative. So I was a starting right back at St. Mary's. It was a club team, but we were uh, the best team in the state of Texas. And back then, just like now, there were no or there were no men's varsities in Texas. And so we went around playing, you know, other club teams all over Texas. Uh, and I think that was my introduction. So my introduction was some of the best players I ever played with in college were the kids from South America that I played with as a freshman at St. Mary's University in San Antonio, Texas. And so they were teaching me the nuances of the game. The South American game is a very high skill level, sophisticated game. So I came into UNC, uh, and this is back in the day when you had to sit a year when you transferred. There was no negotiation. I mean, even though I came from a club team, there was no one at St. Mary's who could write a letter for me and allow me to play immediately. No, so I had to sit out a year. So what did I do? I jumped into the intramural program at UNC, jumped into the rugby team, and I love, I love all sports. There's not a sport out there I don't absolutely love. Uh, heck, actually, at St. Mary's, I also played uh, uh, intramural football. Uh, you'll love that. So I was a punt returner uh, and a, you know, a kickoff returner because uh, I was a wiry little thing and I was pretty quick. And also, I didn't mad, I didn't, it didn't bother me if someone just pounded me into the grass. I mean, I, Payne and I had a wonderful relationship. So, I mean, there's not a sport out there I don't absolutely love. Um, so for me, uh, sports are, were my life. And what was funny, um, you know, when my dad wants me to go to law school and everything else, uh, uh, what did I spend most of my time doing at the University of North Carolina? I spent most of my time playing intramural sports. In fact, when I transferred uh, 
from uh, San Antonio, the St. Mary's University in San Antonio to uh, the University of North Carolina. One of the people to greet me was my dorm intramural director. And he came into my dorm room and basically said, Anson, we take intramurals here in Teague dorm very seriously. Um, do you mind looking at this list of winter and spring sports and tell me if you think uh, you're good enough to compete for the dorm in any one of these sports? And he hands me this clipboard. I look at it for several seconds. I hand it back to him and I said, listen, if you want to win, put me on every single team. I wasn't joking. I wasn't joking. And we started a 17-year intramural sports dynasty in Teague Dorm because, yeah, I can beat everyone to death in every sport. Um, and I'm not embarrassed by that. I just love everything about sports. Um, and I just loved everything about being in Teague. Uh, I loved everything about uh, being at the University of North Carolina. So for me, my real education wasn't an academic one at UNC. It was, uh, it was a sports education. And this will this will crack you up. So uh, there's a brilliant uh, sports uh, science professor here at UNC by the name of Ariane Waite. And she did some research uh, here at UNC. And she took the cohort of all the athletes that graduated from UNC. And she took a, a cohort of the rest of the UNC population and did a study. And what she concluded with her study is even though academically, all of us athletes that competed on the 28 different sports teams at UNC, in terms of their life achievements post-college, were superior in terms of income, life satisfaction, and everything else to the student population, which academically was so much better than all of us. If you look at uh, the admission standard for a, a student to get into the University of North Carolina from out of state, I would never get in. I got in because I was crowbarred in by you know some sort of dean because I was the, my father's law firm that was representing him in this oil company adventure was had connections at the University of North Carolina because one of the refineries he was going to be building was in Moorhead City, North Carolina. So we had all kinds of political connections, which was the only reason I was admitted to the University of North Carolina because I'm not that particularly gifted as a student. So anyway, so I get in because of a crowbar, fall in love with the sports on campus, fall in love with intramurals, played everything under the sun. Yeah, fell in love with soccer. And I did get better, but I wasn't really exceptional. I mean, you know, to some extent, I, you know, I got a lot of accolades, but um, I was just a someone that enjoyed colliding into other people and, you know, smashing them up. So I wouldn't say I was a gifted technician or maybe particularly tactical. Uh, but anyway, so uh, I loved it. Um, and <laughs> I just backdoored my way uh, onto the team, backdoored my way into coaching and then absolutely fell in love with it. Once I fell in love with it, I was all in. Um, and even though uh, I'm not much of a student, I love to read. Um, my education is reading books from my boarding school days where you weren't allowed to sleep at your desk during a study hall at this boarding school. You had to be erect with a book open at your desk. And so all of us at the La Ville Saint-Jean in Fribourg, Switzerland, just read. We read all day. And obviously, John, you can tell because you're into the second mountain, I'm still reading. And uh, my kids are reading because I think that's the real education. I mean, not that I didn't have some extraordinary professors. I certainly did. Uh, but for me, uh, my education is is uh, reading everything I can. I love that. And I I love the intramural story. You know, I heard that on Bronco's podcast, how competitive you were. And one thing that, you know, is there's no doubt 
you know, that obviously this is our first conversation, but because I was going to have this conversation, I've researched and I've listened to some podcasts and I've, you know, your competitiveness is at another level. Um, one of the podcasts I listened to today, you were bragging. Um, I'm going to say the word bragging. You had just played in a pickleball game, a pickleball game, and you had destroyed somebody. And you was excited about it. Like that was that was the highlight of that day was destroying, you know, this pair of uh, in a pickleball contest. So where does the competitiveness come from? Is that something from childhood? Is there a moment in time, you know, that separates your level of competitiveness with other people's level? Like what what do you think about that? I think if uh, we were to really study my background, uh, what was interesting is uh, every three years we moved. So I was born in Bombay, India. Then we moved to Calcutta, then Nairobi, Kenya, then Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, then Singapore, Malaysia, then Brussels, Belgium. And then I'm sent to a Swiss boarding school. In between those three years, we would spend uh, three to six months in a tobacco farm in Lewisburg, North Carolina, where, by the way, I would organize baseball games in our pastures. Uh, so, yeah, for me, I was always organizing sports, playing sports, and I love sports. And so I think a part of what helped me was uh, I remember this distinctly. Uh, I have two brothers and two sisters. Whenever we moved, the brothers had no problem with it. Wherever we moved, we jumped onto the local sports teams. And so, of course, every time we moved, we're in a different sports culture. So if we're in, you know, Kenya, where, you know, Nairobi's located. Um, I'm boxing. I am playing field hockey, which in the British system, the men play as, as well as the women. So in this country, of course, field hockey is a women's game. But in Kenya, it's a men's game. So I'm a fullback on the field hockey team. I'm a boxer uh, because in the British educational system, uh, you had to uh, learn to fight. And so I was a really good boxer. My hands are quick. Again, I had a high pain threshold. So I love boxing. Um, and, uh, I was just a passionate cricket player. I was a slip in cricket, which is sort of like a catcher. It's the person that plays behind the wickets. And if someone, you know, nicks a ball and you can catch it, the, the batter's out. And so I'm playing in all these British sports. And then we move up to, uh, Addis Ababa. And in Addis Ababa, I was, uh, uh, I went to the African school. So what am I playing? I'm playing marbles. I'm playing rock throwing games and I'm playing soccer. Now, am I any good at soccer? No, I absolutely suck. I mean, I absolutely suck. Um, and, you know, these Africans are just dancing all around me and over me and through me. And I am an absolute frigging moving traffic cone. I'm so bad. But I'm really good at marbles and I'm really good at the rock throwing games. In fact, uh, uh, in uh, Ethiopia, all of us carried a rock in our back pocket. And I became very good at throwing rocks uh, because in Ethiopia, they don't believe in, in messing with you with their hands. If you fight someone, uh, it's a rock fight uh, because it's sort of condescending for you to touch someone else when you're fighting them. So I became really good at throwing rocks. I became very good at dodging rocks. Uh, and there were rock games you would play with cattle nine tails cigarette coupons where you'd put them in the middle of a circle and you'd have this line maybe, you know, 5, 10, 15 yards away where you're throwing your rock at the circle to knock these uh, cardboard uh, cards out of a circle. So my arm became really good and accurate, uh, which also fed into other sports because in Singapore, 
Um, the sport I played as my best sport was probably softball. Well, why was I good at softball, even though I had never played it in my life until I got to Singapore? Well, the rock throwing games, a lot of the time you're throwing rocks underhanded. So I could throw a rock very accurately underhanded, which is why when I came to UNC, never played horseshoes in my life. I was the horseshoe champion on campus. Why? Because I was very good at throwing things underhanded. So if you look at the blend of all the sports I've played all my life, they've all fed into each other. So um, I guess for the boys, we couldn't wait to jump into the next culture and learn their sports. And so I'm in Singapore, I'm learning to play badminton. And I'll tell you, if you play badminton in Singapore, that's an elite level. So I was a four-time badminton champion at the University of North Carolina. When I went to Switzerland, uh, one of the things I loved to do was I was a judo fighter. And so uh, I was climbing the belts in judo. So I jumped into wrestling here at the University of North Carolina, never having wrestled uh, a moment in my life. So I'm wrestling in intramurals and I'm beating everyone to death because no one my weight is going to whip my ass. So I'm out there pounding them. And I was very comfortable with that because of judo. Now, I had a lot of points deducted because in judo, you can lock and in wrestling, you can't. So when I was locking in my pins, I, there would be a deduction for I was locking and, you know, any other way. In other words, when your hand comes together, it's a lock. You can do that in judo, but not in wrestling. So anyway, I was breaking all these wrestling rules, but I didn't care. I would just beat people to death. Um, and anyway, I was also fit as hell. The wrestling season was right after the soccer season. So I would come into this, onto this wrestling mat, just fit as frigging hell, 135 pounds of hell. And I was going to rip that guy's head off. And he knew it because I went after him. I wasn't one of these passive wrestlers that would slap their arms away. No, I would try to tackle him right out of the gate. I also had a massive head. I learned about this, by the way, late in life when one of my kids was born and uh, his head was so big and his three month checkup, my wife called me in a panic because the doctors thought he had water on the brain or something. So my wife asked me to measure the circumference of my head. My head is in the top one percentile in size in the world. So when I'm wrestling someone, I am literally ramming him with my head as hard as I can, uh, which was also a weapon for me, by the way, in ice hockey is if my head could hit someone, they were in frigging trouble. It was a massive thing. And I know if I really got into a fight where I wanted to kill someone, trust me, the headbutt would be my first lunge because I was a great header in soccer anyway. But with this massive skull, if my uh, forehead hit his nose, it would be going through the back of his skull, I promise you. So anyway, you mix all these sports together. And for me, it, everything was about sport. Everything was about competition. And it was because we just jumped into the local sports culture and I, it didn't matter what the sport was. I jumped in and just loved it and embraced it um, and that prepared me for intramurals at the University of North Carolina. And to this day, and by the way, the reason I played pickleball is I was playing soccer days, three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. This is into my late 60s. I was playing inline hockey uh, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, and I tore my hip labrum playing inline hockey. And it got me out of everything. I couldn't play soccer anymore because they had to replace my hip. Uh, I couldn't play, you know, hockey anymore. And I was so depressed. And finally, this woman that was dying for me to try pickleball and I refused to play it. I said, you know, pickleball, what kind of, you know, fruitcake game is that? There's no freaking way I'm going to play that stupid game. She finally dragged me out there and I fell in love with pickleball in my first game. And the greatest thing about pickleball for me is you don't have to move. 
especially if you play doubles. The court's tiny. Um, if your hands have any kind of coordination, and I played a lot of tennis, so my hands were pretty good. Played a lot of badminton. My hands were pretty good. Played a lot of ping pong. My hands were pretty good. I mean, I've played a lot of games with my hands, so my hands are damn good. So even though my body was a wreck, you know, the frigging hit, I was slow as mud. If I could get to a ball, you were finished. Uh, so uh, in pickleball, you will eventually get to a ball. And so uh, anyway, I love playing that now. And that's all I'm left with. So trust me, I have found one of the best over 70 guys in the country to train with because I am determined to be really good at this game. Now, right now, I still really suck, but I promise you I'm going to get better. I'm going to tell you what. I don't even know what to say, you know, like the, the moving in the sports, you know, the amount of games that you've played, you know, that does lend itself to being competitive. Cause my guess is when you made those moves and you entered those games, you wanted to be good because being good would, would get you some, you know, street cred in the group. Right. So, you know, you can't go into all them games and suck. And then ain't nobody going to like you. You ain't going to have no friends. So I can definitely see that. And the pickleball thing, you know, like that has really taken the world by storm. And I tell, you know, kids here that I took a pickleball class mm-hmm. in college in 1991. Okay. So like, it's really not new, but it has gotten popular, you know, <laughs> and it is a really fun game, you know? I love it. I love it. What about, you know, competitiveness is a separator, you know, and in coaches that I study, you know, Nick Saban, extreme competitor, Urban Meyer, extreme competitor, you know, almost, and some of them are so competitive. It's, it's, you know, it can be detrimental in other parts of their life, you know, like that's, you know, that's an issue. What do you think besides competitiveness? Because in your, you know, in your profession, there are other soccer coaches that are competitive. Okay. Like that's not it. What do you think separated you from the people that you played against? Because your record speaks for itself. There had to be more to you than just the competitiveness that separated you from other coaches. Guardian caps are lightweight, one size fits all football helmet covers for practice. They reduce 20 to 33% of the impact depending on the speed and the location. Great for the repetitive sub-concussive blows that add up throughout the week. Also great for body blows. Used by Clemson, Penn State, Washington, Oklahoma, 150 other colleges, and about 2,000 high schools across the country. Also protect that helmet. If your helmets are getting beat up at the end of the year, Guardian Caps can help protect that helmet investment. I think uh, it was sort of interesting. I did a podcast last week, and uh, we got into this a bit, and I kind of enjoyed uh, the conversation. And here's what he talked about. This is a guy that has 52 elements of the United States that have the potential to take us to a different level in football. And he wasn't just talking about women's football or women's soccer. He was talking about men's football, men's soccer. And what he got me to talk about, I've never really spoken about much on a podcast, but it was so interesting. I'll share it with you. I think we all coach through our own personalities. So obviously, if we see people that we really admire, we can't necessarily adopt uh, their ideas if those ideas don't conform to who we are. 
So even though, yes, you know, um, I think there are a lot of people out there I've learned a heck of a lot from, but I can't pretend to be John Wooden. Um, doesn't mean I haven't stolen every idea I can from him. So I think we all coach through our own personality. So this guy wanted to know um, what separated me when I started coaching the United States full national team. And I told him what separated me because, again, I was I was completely transparent with him. I said, because he assumed since I lived all over the world that I fell in love with soccer by living all over the world. Well, here's what's interesting. If you're an American and you're raised overseas like I was, you become a passionate American patriot. And you end up wanting to be more of an American. So what you want to do is you want to be really good at American sports. So I fell in love with American sports while I was overseas because I wanted to be more American. The other thing that happens when you're born and raised overseas is you end up, if you're like me, viscerally defending American foreign policy, right or wrong. Because let's face it, the world has a love-hate relationship with the United States. And I felt this. Those fights I would get into in uh, Kenya and Ethiopia, I mean, these were real serious fights because they love us and they hate us. They are jealous of us, uh, but by the same token, they admire us. And so it uh, didn't matter what America was doing. And of course, you know, when I was growing up, you know, we were involved in the Vietnam War. And so uh, one of my dreams as a boy was to go to West Point because I wanted to fight for the United States. I wanted to you know, become an officer and go to Vietnam. And so what were the books I read back then? Well, I read all about Che Guevara and I became an expert on guerrilla warfare. So much so that when I was at St. Mary's University in San Antonio, Texas, there was mandatory ROTC. And so we had a war games. It was the freshmen and sophomores against the juniors and seniors. And I knew that to how I was going to fight because the way they usually organize this, and I knew this because I'd done so much reading, is the freshmen and sophomores are basically cannon fodder for the juniors and seniors. So they figure out a way to march you into an ambush and then everyone's killed. And so I brought my platoon together. I said, no frigging way that I'm going to die in this war games. But we're going to go outside the territory. In other words, we're going to cheat and no one's going to capture us. And we're going to descend on them from behind by making this, this audacious loop going out of, you know, there's a certain amount of space that you're allowed to fight in. And I said, no freaking way. This is set up for our failure. We are not going to fail. So believe it or not, I was court-martialed uh, for uh, not obeying the rules in a war game. But none of my platoon was killed. We killed a hell of a lot by obviously cheating. And so I was basically uh, court-martialed for not dying at, you know, uh, St. Mary's University in San Antonio, Texas. So uh, for me, uh, I was raised uh, a guerrilla warfare fighter. And then my mom, who was so damn smart, she knew if I went to West Point and then ended up in Vietnam, I was going to end up getting fragged by my own troops. I am a psycho. I think I'm immortal. Uh, I don't think that anymore, by the way. <laughs> I think ever since the hip injury, I'm thinking, oh, my God, I am mortal. How pathetic is that? So anyway. Um, so my mother knew I was an absolute psycho. So she convinced me not to go to West Point. Uh, oh, one of my favorite stories is uh, uh, I do a lot of speaking on leadership. And so I was invited to speak at the Naval Academy one year, which I really enjoy. I love speaking at all the academies. 
and I'm invited in to speak at the Naval Academy. I'm on a panel. I'm up there with a Marine general, a U.S. senator, and someone else. I can't remember who it was. And all of a sudden, as you can tell, I'm a storyteller. And half the time, I can't control where my story ends up going. So I'm here at the Naval Academy, and I tell everyone, you know, I just want you to know, as a boy, my dream was to go to West Point. The front two rows stood up and gave me a standing ovation, and I wasn't aware of it. But apparently, when the Naval Academy holds an event, they invite the cadets from West Point to come over. And the front two rows are West Point cadets. And obviously, when West Point has a you know some sort of leadership group come in, the Naval Academy comes over. And I wasn't aware of what I said, because here I'm at the Naval Academy, and I'm telling them my dream as a boy was to go to West Point. So after my talk, they all surrounded me and said, oh, my gosh, Coach, that took so much balls to say that at the Naval Academy that your dream was to go to West Point. Listen, boys, 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 that was a mistake. No way I wanted to insult my host. I just want you guys to know that was an absolute mistake. They thought it was the best damn thing. So anyway, so, uh, um, yeah, love-hate relationship with the United States. And so we developed our own way to play. I didn't worship at the altar of the 442, which was the popular system that was played in Europe at the time. Um, I created my own system. The trouble with the 442, it was too passive for me. And I don't know enough about football, except to tell you that my philosophy in football would probably be to blitz on every play. I don't believe in letting anyone stay alive. Uh, so, and for me, it's the same philosophy in soccer. Back in those days, you would let the other team develop the ball in the back by passing it around with two forwards, pressurizing the four backs and the goalkeeper. And then they would pass the ball in the midfield. Then they would send a player into midfield. They have all these tactical ideas. Nah, that's not me at all. I wanted to reach out, grab the other team by the throat and squeeze the freaking air out of them. We weren't going to wait for them to come to us. We were going to go after them. And so we played this very aggressive one, three, four, three. And just in that world cup, we just went after everyone. We didn't, you know, we didn't play the way everyone else did. And of course, why? Cause that's my personality. I'm not going to sit back and be a counter puncher. I'm going to, you know, throw one haymaker after the other, knowing that when you hit me with your haymaker, I'm not only going to uh, survive it, I'm going to enjoy it. Because Payne and I have an incredibly positive relationship with each other. And I'm going to make sure you have as much pain as I do. And I know what's going to happen. You're going you're gonna to wave the white flag because I can handle it better than you can. So anyway, so that was my philosophy going in. So in this podcast, I'm telling these guys what my philosophy was. It wasn't a European philosophy. It was an American philosophy. And when I coached the United States, when I competed against these other countries, I was remembering every slight. I competed viscerally. I wanted to tear the other team in half. And I am basically channeling and internalizing every insult, every slap in the face, every rock fight, every fist fight, every you know insult that was thrown my way as an American. And I coached with that. And my players understood where I was coming from, and that's the way they played. Our teams were exceptionally aggressive. And uh, to this day, the United States has won more world championships in women's soccer than any other country. And I'm incredibly proud of that because in 1991, um, we beat the world at its own game. It's not like Mexico developed a football team and came up here and crushed the United States in football. No, um, I'm talking about the, your football. No. They can't do that. We took their game, soccer, and we beat them at it. And we didn't beat them at it the way they play it. We beat them at it the way we play it. 
which is hard charging. It's done with fitness. It's done with athletic ability. It's done with high pain thresholds. And we just went after everyone in the world. And to this day, the thing that separates the United States is our mentality. Well, first of all, like if you if you ever get in trouble at North Carolina and you need a new job, you can come coach defense for me. Okay. Just blitz the house and go get them. And as, and I, you know, like one thing that, you know, and I think uh, Rick and Chris would agree with this. One thing that comes through the screen is being all in and being extremely competitive, you know, and that's, that's more than the majority of the people in this world, you know, like I, I can tell right now that, you know, you probably practices were probably designed to win. They were designed to be competitive. They were, and I've heard, you know, how uh, some of the ladies talked about how competitive practice was. I listened to a podcast today with a young lady that, you know, said when she got there, she was put into a drill with one of the older, better players and just got smoked over and over because, you know, that was just the way it is, you know, that it is an extremely competitive sport. I should have asked this already. You know, you started off with the men's program and then you rolled into both and then you, you know, stuck with the why, why, why the female instead of the male uh, programs? John, Rick and Chris, women are coachable. I am so sorry you guys have never coached women. Because if you coached women, and by the way, and you guys know this, um, women's football is coming on now. I'm seeing uh, seven-on-seven tournaments in Texas. I mean, are you kidding me? If you guys coached women, the first thing that would strike you is, oh, my God, they actually listen to you. And uh, that is so much more fun. And the other thing is uh, they will remember your birthday. They will send you Christmas cards. Um, they will say nice things about you behind your back. Um, it's just incredible uh, what happens when you coach human beings that are women. Uh, they appreciate you. They don't fight you every step of the way. I mean, hell, when I was you know, a young coach, uh, it was easier for me to coach the men because I could dominate them. I could say, no, 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 give me the ball. Let me show you. So I could show them you know, how the game was played. And so then you would have credibility. But as you get older and you're no longer the alpha in the game, all of a sudden, you know, the other young alphas, uh, you know, have their own ideas. Well, that didn't make me an All-American. I'm not going to do that. And you're thinking, are you freaking kidding me? You freaking, you know, pencil neck. Are you serious about, you know, telling me that you think we should be playing this way? And it's just, I was thinking, are you kidding me? And uh, the women are coachable. So now we have our own issues on the women's side. Uh, men are so easy to manage throw a six pack out there on the floor and we've bonded within, you know, five minutes. Um, and men understand hierarchy. So for some extent, uh, there is some hierarchy on a men's team. I mean, if, if you came into my office and said, Anson, uh, I want to sit in your chair, I'll get up and move. I don't want to die. So we understand hierarchy. You know what I'm saying? We understand, you know, the alphas, you know, make the rules and everything else. And I understand all that. Um, but the women are so damn coachable. And you guys would love it. You would love it because they would actually try your play rather than roll their eyes thinking, you know, this would make me an All-American in high school uh, or if, wherever you're recruiting from middle school. 
you know, just give me the ball. Let me do my thing. No, 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 no. We're going to do it this way. Well, I've got this idea. Well, no, no, no. We're going to do it this way. I mean, so what's fascinating is, well, I love watching. I love watching Reed coach. Uh, Do you guys see that game? Yes. Okay. Uh, There's a classical alpha. Uh, And you don't get in his way. And I love that man because he can command everyone. uh, Even the other alphas out there. But, oh, my gosh. There's so much, you know, stuff in the men's game that uh, I didn't like. But the women uh, are extraordinarily coachable. So if you want to know what you teach, coach women. Hey, Anson, I have two very short stories. Number one, you are actually looking at the first men's female uh, 7-on-7 flag football coach in Nixon, Missouri, okay? Like, we're starting. We're the only one around here. We're going to have to go to Kansas City to play. But I'm going to coach the first ever team, and I'm excited about it. Like, I really am. Am Well, yeah, John, then you understand what I'm saying. They are so coachable. I coached in Mississippi. I coached female and males powerlifting. And the females were so coachable. Like when I told them to get below parallel, they got below parallel every time. Like it was crazy, you know, like, so I am a hundred percent understanding exactly what you're saying. Okay. What was the key to the success for such a long time. One of the things I admire most about Nick Saban is mm-hmm. he climbed the hill, the mountain, and he climbed the mountain every year, you know? And I think that is so hard. There are so many people mm-hmm. that get there and then fall and struggle to get back. You know, like what is the key to sustaining that excellence over such a long period of time? Well, obviously a part of it is humility. I mean, one of the biggest problems most of us had have when we have success is to assume that we're God's gift. Um, and I'm not going to get this exactly right, but you guys can do your research. Uh, uh, and I can't remember who told this to me or if I read it somewhere. But, uh, you know, when Caesar goes out and conquers Gaul, he comes back into Rome and he's in a chariot. And obviously, uh, ro- laurels are being thrown at him by everyone in, in the city of Rome as he comes back with his triumphant army. But one thing, and maybe it's because of the sophistication of the Roman Senate, but apparently what happens when he rides into Rome in his chariot, he has a slave that's standing behind him, basically saying every step of the way, hey, you're not so great. Hey, you're not so great. Hey, you're not so great. And I love that. So uh, I've never really felt... um, I have what's called imposter syndrome. When I look at the numbers, I can't believe any of it. It's shocking. Um, so uh, one of my favorite stories is, uh, again, as, as I mentioned to you guys before, I went to one of these ritzy Swiss boarding schools where your dad spends a small fortune educating you. And of course, when you go to that kind of school, uh, you have no choice. You've got to apply to small Ivy or big Ivy uh, to justify the fact your dad has just spent a fortune educating you. So, of course, uh, my first choice of schools coming out of La Ville Saint-Jean was Bowdoin in Maine. Bowdoin is a small ivy, very selective school. Uh, like my boarding school, it was very expensive. And the thing I liked about Bowdoin is not only was it a great school, but uh, I skied uh, every Monday 
when I was at Saint Jean because we went to school on Saturdays. So went to school on Saturdays so we could jump on the ski slopes on Monday. So all of us uh, that were at La Ville Saint Jean were applying to Bowdoin as a priority and Dartmouth. That was another one of my choices. Trinity in Connecticut. Uh, these were all my top choices for schools. My backup school was St. Mary's University in San Antonio, Texas, because it was taught by the same Catholic teaching order as La Ville Saint-Jean. So I needed a school in case I was rejected at Bowdoin and Dartmouth and Trinity. To make a long story short, I was rejected at Bowdoin, I was rejected at Dartmouth, and I was rejected at Trinity. I am off to St. Mary's University in San Antonio, Texas, the only school that admitted me. <laughs> and then uh, three years ago, I absolutely loved it. Maybe it's now five years ago. So five years ago, I get this call from the provost at Bowdoin. She wants me to come speak at Bowdoin. As I said, I'm sorry, sir. I'm sorry, ma'am. Uh, I'm not interested in speaking. And she was shocked that, that came out of my mouth so quickly. She said, oh, coach, I'm so sorry. Why aren't you interested in coming to speak to us at Bowdoin? I said, well, because in the spring of 1969, I applied to Bowdoin and you guys rejected me. And honestly, I'm still a little pissed. <laughs> I said, however, if on Bowdoin admission stationery, you guys will write me a letter of apology, apologizing for the egregious error you made in the spring of 1969. I will consider going up there to speak to you. Anyway, to make the long story short, yep, I went up there to speak. Did they apologize to me? No. But I charged them the richest speaking fee I thought imaginable. And of course, they could pay it. Because of course, they could pay it. The tuition there is so much. I bet every one of those guys lives in a gilded dorm. So anyway, they, you know, I, I was hoping they would say, I'm sorry, sir. You know, that is too much money. But they accepted my ridiculous speaking fee. So I did go up there to speak. And I gave three different presentations. Every presentation started with that story. That is absolutely anyway, awesome. I had my revenge at Bodum. And then when I went up there, I'm thinking, my God, am I glad I didn't come to this school? <laughs> Holy crap. I mean... Yeah, I mean, gosh, no, 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 I don't I didn't belong there. Like you boys, I'm a southerner. Get my drift. I get your drift. I, I can prime tobacco, I can uh load hogs, I can pick cotton. I did not belong at Bowdoin. Sure. Uh, if I had gone to Bowdoin, I would have been some corporate attorney in New York and I would have shot myself in the head a long time ago. So I am so glad um I didn't get in, although honestly, uh I didn't deserve to go there. I wasn't that good of a student. Uh, I embraced my lack of academic commitment. Um, so, uh, well, I'm going to say, Coach, things worked out just fine for you. You know, you didn't miss anything from there. That's for sure. Chris Yeager, one of our guys that's in our inner circle group that's sitting in. Chris Yeager from Mountain Brook, Alabama. I know he's got a question. Let me hear it, Chris. Unmute yourself, Chris. Anson, it's honored to get to hear uh, this. This is unbelievable. So inspiring. Uh, the next time I have a player that walks in my office and talks about specializing, I'm going to let them hear this podcast because you proved that the greatest skill set is not speed. It's not whatever you want to say. It's guts, grit, determination, fearlessness, and that's the greatest skill set. You've proved that. You you know, there's a risk reward. You have no risk aversion. And it's just 
that's what an incredible uh, message to young people, especially in that realm. But one thing I want to ask, I guess that's an incredible observation. But anyway, the one thing I want to ask is you've got an unconventional journey and you approach the game in such an unconventional way. I know along the way you have faced all kinds. People are probably trying to copy you, but you've also faced a lot of resentment. I would assume Mm -hmm. other coaches along the way because you have altered the game. And so would that be a a correct observation? Honestly, um, no one tries to do what we do, which is shocking, except for the head coach at the university of Arkansas. And as a result, that ass kicker is almost impossible to beat. Even for us to beat him, he plays just like we do. He is cutthroat. His kids are hard charging. They're fierce and they're reckless. And as a result, we schedule them (laughs) because I have no issue if Arkansas beats us up so I can talk to my girls after the game and say, how did that feel? Well, that's the way I want us to play. So I have a lot of admiration for him. The last time we went there, they beat us. And I have nothing but respect for him. He came up here and we beat him. So right now I have nothing but respect for uh, his aggression. Now, we probably play a little bit more sophisticated uh, than he does. uh, And our players are probably a little bit better than his. uh, But I have nothing but admiration for him because of the way he plays. We were taken out of this year's uh, tournament in the Elite Eight by Brigham Young University. They also play exactly the way that we do. They believe in winning duels. They believe in the 1v1 game. And uh, when uh, they went to the Final Four, Stanford knocked them out in a travesty of justice. And I called their coach after the game and I said, Coach, I just want you to know that your team was unbelievable because then Stanford lost to uh, uh, Florida State five to one. It was a slaughter. Uh, I think Florida State would have struggled uh, to beat um, basically a BYU because we outplayed Florida State when we played them. We were their only blemish. They tied us and they tied us in the last seven seconds. We were the better team on that day. Uh, So I really admire the way BYU plays uh, because they're the closest team out there to us. And I think a part of the reason is I am I am a Mormon. Uh, they're the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They're Mormons out there. And uh, so uh, I feel very connected with them. Um, and I like everything they do. And uh, anyway, so they took us out this year. But I really felt like uh, they played our game better than we did on that day. We were winning 3-0 at the half. Usually in soccer, if you're up 3-0, it's game over. And they came back in the second half and just took us apart. I underestimated uh, Provo and Altitude uh, because the last time we went there, we did beat them. Uh, they were seated one. We were seated two. We beat them out there. So I didn't change my, uh, I guess, my altitude protocol, and I should have. Um, and they took us out. Second half, uh, they scored. Uh, we were winning uh, 3-1 with 10 minutes to go, and they scored three to beat us. Mm. And uh, we were just absolutely knackered. So I think that was my mistake. Um, but I have admiration for them. But believe it or not, most of the American coaches, and I have no issue with this, they use the world's game uh, as a, a model for the way they should play. Um, and of course, I use the American spirit as the model for the way we play. Although I have hired a brilliant technician and tactician who now runs my practices. And so now we are playing a very sophisticated level of the game. Uh, my assistant and I, and by the way, he's 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 a genius. He's the one 
uh, that I've recommended to my athletic director to replace me when I step down. His name is Damon Nahas. Technically and tactically, I think he's the best guy out there. And so we've got what we call a fusion. So we try to have my mentality and his technical and tactical platform. And we're trying to fuse that together. And since we brought him aboard, we did start to fade a bit. But when I brought him aboard, we uh, came back and we've been in, you know, most of the final fours when he's been with us. We were within 16 seconds of a national championship and a blind referee last year. Uh, so we were cheated out of a national championship. I hope that ref is listening. Um, but anyway, so, uh, but uh, I put this at the feet of Damon Nahas. I think he's brilliant. And so uh, he uh, sort of resurrected us. Um, brought us back and now we're as competitive as all the top programs um, and uh, I'm very proud of our fusion but yeah mentality I think is my strength I'm very good at teaching kids to compete uh, to fight to never give up uh, and it's really interesting I mean people think that my favorite stat about our program are the 22 national championships it's not my favorite stat and a typical soccer season is anywhere from, let's say, 20 to 22 or three or four games. My favorite stat is we had, and I think it's 603 games in a row, where we either won it, tied it, or lost by one goal. Mm. So that meant for 603 games in a row, we were in it until the last second. In other words... We are almost never beaten by more than one goal, even great teams. This year's Florida State team is the greatest team they've ever had. Uh, we tied them, and I don't care how great your team is. One year, we're over at Duke, and uh, we have never lost to Duke at Duke University. How is that possible? We're in the same conference. They are 10 miles away. They would rather beat us than breathe oxygen. They recruited our level. They have a fantastic coach. We have never lost to Duke at Duke. We've never lost to Virginia at Virginia. These, this is impossible statistics. Um, and I'm very proud of that. Our kids are just wonderfully competitive. Mm. Uh, one year, I remember us going over to Duke and our team sucked. And Duke had a great team. They were ranked in the on a top two or three or something. I think we were maybe barely somewhere in the top 10. We go over there to play. And uh, <laughs> The visiting team is usually the team interviewed going into halftime. So uh, it's on TV. And so the TV commentator comes up, puts a mic in my face and Anson, uh, uh, what's your goal in the second half? And I said, my goal in the second half is to take one shot. Because we hadn't taken a shot in the first half. Mm. And Duke was just pinging balls, you know, all around our goal. They hadn't scored any yet, but, you know, they were bouncing balls off my goalkeeper's forehead and off her throat. And she was making skate saves. And anyway, it was just incredulous. So all of a sudden, second half begins. And all of a sudden, in the first seven minutes, we actually managed to take a shot. I went running out in the field on a full slide like we had won the world championship. And of course, I was yellow carded. But that was my goal. My goal in the second half was just to take one shot. And we achieved our goal. And my goalkeeper had a blinder. And we ended up tying the game, I think, 0-0. Zero, zero. Wow. So, but, you know, our kids compete. Uh, sure. You know, some years we're not going to have the best players when we play some of these teams. But our kids are street fighters. They're not going to give up. And, you know, maybe God's just on my shoulder because, you know, yeah, we've just lucked out, stayed alive. Uh, so uh, 
Um, the stat I am most proud of is for 603 games in a row, we either won it, tied it, or lost by one. We were in it for 603 games in a row. I am unbelievably proud of that stat. That is unbelievable. I'm going to request a story at this point because okay. I know I'm going to have some 17-year-old kids listen to this. And there's a story, and this is probably a well-known story, okay, but uh, Mia Hamm, she's mm -hmm. in her second semester, her senior year, so soccer's over, right, for school. It's over, and you're headed to work. Can you take it from there? Absolutely. So anyway, uh, obviously everyone knows uh, uh, Mia. They know who she is. They they know what she achieved. And and obviously it was a privilege coaching such an extraordinary woman. And there are a lot of ways I can get into work. There's a fast route. I can zip out to uh, elementary school road and then to Estes Drive and then Martin Luther King. And then I can take a couple side streets. I'm at work anywhere from seven to 12 minutes based on the lights. I don't always go that way. Sometimes I want a, you know, a more peaceful route onto campus. And there's a small park called Umstead Park. Every now and again, I'll go through Umstead. <clears throat> this is February. It's cold out. It's pretty early in the morning. And I've decided to drive through Umstead Park. And all of a sudden, out the corner of my eye, I can see this figure going five and back, 10 and back, 15 and back, 20 and back, 25 and back. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, that, that sort of looks like Mia. So I pulled over in the parking lot. And I watched this figure. And in between these sprints, you could see hot air shooting from her lungs. You could see sweat just flying off her brow. And I was just so impressed. I drove into work. Again, she didn't even know I was there. And I scribbled a note to her. I dropped it in the mail and I forgot about it. Ten years later, after Mia had become world famous, she wrote a book called Go for Goal. And she sent me a copy of that book. And then all of a sudden... I opened up that book and there in the breastplate of the book was the note I'd written her. The vision of a champion is someone who is bent over, drenched in sweat at the point of exhaustion when nobody's watching. Mm. So what I was trying to share with her is the final measure in athletic greatness is not what you do in practice. Everyone goes to practice. Everybody wants to win. So what's the measure? What's the final measure in athletic greatness? Well, it's what you do on your own. And if what you do on your own in February is to get up relatively early in the morning when it's cold out and you do the most grueling fitness exercise on your own and you're working at it so hard, you're on the verge of throwing up. So you're bent over after your sprints and the hot air is shooting from your lungs. You have made a commitment and that's when I knew, that's when I absolutely knew she was going to become the best player in the world because those are the kids that separate themselves. So don't think, oh, yeah, I'm going to go to every practice and I'm going to work hard in practice and I'm going to make it. No. If you're not doing the stuff outside of practice, you're not going to make it. Everyone practices. Everyone goes to practice. What's your separator? Mm. Do you have the capacity to frigging torture yourself because God, when it's cold out, your lungs are frigging burning when you're sucking in that oxygen. Anyone that trains in cold weather will tell you the, the same thing. When you suck in that cold air, air, when you're exhausted, it sears your frigging lungs. And I was just so impressed. And, um, and that book, you know, it was right behind me. It sits on 
<clears throat> one of my desks here. And there's another book that sits there, by the way. And I'll share this story as well, because obviously it applies to all three of you. Um, <clears throat> I'm at the White House one summer, um, and we are dressed to the nines. And that year, uh, one of the President Bushes had invited every Division I national champion to join him in the White House in the summer. We are in a long security line, and I am dressed to the nines. I have my best suit on. All my girls are dressed, you know, so nicely, and I'm so impressed with how good everyone looks. And and all of a sudden, I can look back on the security line. I can see this white-haired guy fighting his way up the line. And he gets in front of me. He says, Coach, uh, do you know who I am? I said, I'm sorry, sir, I don't. He says, well, my name is Pete Carroll, and we use your book to train our football team with. I said, you are frigging kidding me. They had just been co-national champions, I think, along with LSU. And this was when he was at USC. And he came up and found me to tell me that he used training soccer champions to coach his football team with. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. And then he made it even better because a couple of years later, he's playing. Uh, he's gone to the Seahawks. And uh, he's playing, I guess, the Charlotte team in Charlotte. He says, Anson, I want to honor you on my sideline. All these boys know I talk about you. And uh, they might have a real dislike for you because of what I have going, which is competitive Wednesdays. On Wednesdays, all we do is compete. Wow. The O-line against the D-line in the red zone, the first-team quarterback against the second-team quarterback, uh, the D-backs against the receivers, the running backs against uh, – I'm sorry, the, uh, uh, yeah, the running backs against the linebackers. Everything is recorded. Fights break out in practice. And uh, I just want you to know that I love that practice. And I learned it by reading your book. And I was thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, God take me now. It's never going to get better than this. <laughs> and so then all of a sudden, it did get better. He sends me a book. He sends me Win Forever, his yep. book. On page 148 of that book, or 142, I can't remember anymore. He talks about my book. Are you freaking kidding me? So now he's the coach of the Seahawks. And in his book, he talks about reading my book. And I was thinking, this is unbelievable. So anyway, when I told him I couldn't join him uh, in Charlotte because we were playing against the University of Miami, I asked him, I said, coach, coach, I would love to spend a week with you and study your methodology. If you mind, if I come out uh, to Seattle and just watch you coach your kids. And he said, Anson, my team sucks this year. We're not going to make the playoffs. You know, there's no reason for you. Uh, we're not even going to have a season after the regular season. And then all of a sudden he got rid of a linebacker, I think. And then all of a sudden his team went from nowhere to the top. And now all of a sudden they're in the playoffs. And coincidentally, who is he playing the week I am there? He's playing the frigging Carolina Panthers. It was like, you know, life just was in this wonderful circle for me. And I went out there and studied him. And I had the time of my life. And to show you what an unbelievable man he is, just before he stepped back this year, my staff was out there, and they know my love for this man because I only wrote root for two teams, whatever team Pete Carroll is coaching in the University of North Carolina. And so, obviously, I'm a huge Pete Carroll fan. And, you know, this is years ago when he wrote the book, years ago when, you know, he introduced himself to me, years ago when I spent a week out there. I called him on his cell phone because, of course, he gave me a cell phone number. And I said, you know, Pete, I'm going to have some of my staff out there uh, with their families. Do you mind getting them tickets? And all of a sudden, he is treating my staff like VIPs. Are you kidding me? 
And that's class. I mean, class is when um, you do something for someone that can do nothing for you. I can do nothing for Pete Carroll. And he treated my staff like freaking gold. That's the kind of man he is. He's just an exceptional man. And you know what? You know, at the end of it all, you know, yeah, uh, I'd love being considered a good coach. And I'm sure uh, he does as well. But basically, I think uh, the areas where people like uh, Pete Singh is who they are. And uh, so for me, uh, another incredible example of uh, the sort of man that I would like to be. Because uh, holy cow, he didn't have to do that. He doesn't basically know me from Adam. Um, and yet uh, he rolls out the red carpet from uh, my staff in, in the most positive way. There is one classy man. Well, I'm a, I'm a big Pete Carroll fan myself. You know, that's one of my favorite books that I've read. Like, um, he's one of the guys that I feel like did it the right way. You know, mm -hmm. just truly a genuine good guy. I've got to ask this because you're looking at three ferocious readers. What, <laughs> and I know you're a ferocious reader. Um, what are a couple of books that, you know, have impacted you the most, you know, throughout the three, throughout the years? Well, I have to uh, share this. This is the truth. The most impactful book I've ever read is Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. It's a short read. Um, <clears throat> I read it like scripture uh, because the most critical thing in there is um, we have 13 core values that we uh, ask our team to follow. And uh, the core value, the ring that rules them all is the Victor Frankl quote about the last of the human freedoms. The last of the human freedoms is to choose your attitude in any given set of circumstances to choose your way. And what he talks about is there are always choices to make. And the choices define who the hell you are. And I love that. If you want to be, if you want to live an extraordinary life, please live that quote. Because this way, no one can take anything away from you. Because if you control your attitude, and what I love about this he has this attitude in a concentration camp. He's a survivor of one of the worst concentration camps in Europe. Everything he loved was murdered. His mother, his father, all of his brothers and sisters, with the exception of one sister, were murdered in this concentration camp. And he survived that camp with a positive attitude about life. Are you freaking kidding me? How could he possibly do that? Well, what he did is he had the strength to choose his attitude and he chose to have a positive attitude. So in this gilded world that we live in, where every one of my kids knows they're going to sleep in a nice warm bed somewhere every night, they know they're going to be fed at least three scrumptious meals every day. They know that their lives are protect protected in the most positive way. They live in the world's greatest country. Uh, they're at, in my opinion, they're living in paradise. Chapel Hill is a freaking paradise, and they are attending one of the world's great universities. Why do some of these young women, just because their boyfriend forgets to text them back one night, go off the deep end? When Viktor Frankl can go through what he does and lives and have a positive attitude why can't we in our gilded lives have positive attitudes about life? And so for me, reading that book is 
extraordinary. And uh, yeah, that's another book uh, that I read like scripture because it's powerful. So that book for me is the most important. There are a lot of other books though as well. And I'm going to give you some of the more recent ones. Um, after you guys are finished reading The Second Mountain, um, and uh, David Brooks is a conservative, and obviously I coach Republicans and Democrats. I'm like Michael Jordan when they were so critical of him because he didn't you know, speak out uh, against uh, racial injustice. And his line was great because he was a businessman. Well, Republicans buy shoes too. And uh, you know what? Um, I, I have a huge amount of respect for Michael Jordan. Doesn't mean that there are other people I don't respect that have different views on, you know, how to represent themselves and, and their own race. Uh, but I do respect Michael for all the right reasons. But the counterpoint to uh, David Brooks's Second Mountain is the radical liberal uh, David Foster Wallace, whose commencement address at Kenyon College was absolutely brilliant. And his commencement address, and you can read it in one sitting, but what I would do if I were you guys is I would listen to it. And the commencement address is, this is water. It speaks to young people. And what I love is this radical conservative in David Brooks and this radical liberal in uh, David Foster Wallace arrive at the same place, mm. which gives me hope for my country that's being torn apart uh, because the tribes hate each other. I don't want to hate anyone. Um, I've got some views that a lot of people would disagree with. I don't want that side to hate me for my views. And I don't want to hate them for their views. I want us to figure out a way to get along. And those two uh, things, those two reads, it's about caring about people. It's about being compassion, compassionate. It's about uh, being a part of your community. It's about so many positive things. And so for me, uh, my incoming seniors read those two books and we, well, books, uh, that uh, basically a commencement address in the book. And we discuss it in detail. Uh, and uh, I also read that commencement address like scripture because uh, don't just read it once. Uh, read it again. Wait a week or two, read it again. Wait a month or two, uh, listen to it again. And basically make that a part of who you are because uh, it all comes down to the way you treat people. Wow, that's awesome, Anson. I cannot wait to listen to that and to read that. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a pleasure. It's truly been the best hour yet on the Never Stop Getting Better podcast. I'm also thankful to the two guys that sat in with us, Rick Jones and Chris Yeager. Thank you very much for sitting in and being willing to ask a question. This has been one fantastic hour. And Anson, I'm so thankful that I've had the opportunity to have the interview with you. It's not often you get to interview the modern day John Wooden. So I'm so grateful and thankful to you two guys for sitting in. For everybody else listening, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. If you like this one, send it to a friend, share it with somebody. That's how we can spread the Never Stop Getting Better podcast is by sharing it with somebody that you care about if you like it. And also leave a review. They say that helps it to grow. Go on Apple Podcast and leave a review good or bad. I'll take any feedback. I just want to put something good into the world that might can help somebody else. 
So thank you so much for taking the time. And thank you all for being here. And thank you, Anson, for a great hour. Until next time, adios, amigos.